Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hey friends, welcome to episode 56. In this episode, we're going to talk about canonization, the process of canonizing someone. Before we do that, I just wanted to share something with you. I have a friend whom I made through this podcast. Um, She's a beautiful friend. I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to embarrass her, but she was officially received into the Catholic Church this week, which is so exciting. I'm so happy for her. And I wanted to share that and ask you to please pray for her and also for all of the other people who are listening to this podcast. I have been hearing some really beautiful, uplifting stories of people who are finding their way to the Catholic faith. And I wanted to ask for your prayers for those people because some of them don't have many or even any Catholics in their lives who can provide them with that prayerful support. So please do pray for the people who are listening to this podcast, especially for the people who are in the process of conversion. Okay, cool. Let's talk about canonization. How does the Catholic Church decide if someone is a saint? Well, before we get into that, we have to first ask, what is a saint? What does it mean when the church canonizes someone? Well, a saint is basically someone who has died and gone to heaven. That's it. (laughs) A saint just means that someone is in heaven. So they're in the presence of God and they can intercede or pray for us from heaven. So when the church canonizes someone, she is officially confirming that that person is definitely in heaven. She's also confirming that they led a life of exemplary virtue and that we can all venerate them and imitate them. Now, it's important to note that canonization doesn't turn someone into a saint. It's not like they aren't a saint until the church says they are and then suddenly they're a saint. No, if someone is in heaven, they're in heaven. Okay, canonization is just a way of officially and publicly affirming that pre-existing reality that someone is definitely in heaven. And what this means is that there are plenty of people who are saints who are in heaven who haven't officially been declared saints by the church. The church doesn't aim to canonize every single person who has died and gone to heaven. The whole point of canonization, it's not like a stamp of approval that the saints in heaven need, otherwise their saintly status isn't legit. (laughs) Canonization is kind of more for the people on earth than anything else. It's a way of providing us with inspiration and hope and holding up examples of real life people for us to imitate and remind us to ask for their intercession. So for that reason, the Catholic Church only canonizes people for whom they have clear evidence that they lived a life of extraordinary virtue, that they're someone that we can all look up to and imitate. So if the church refrains from canonizing someone, that's not her saying, nope, this person is definitely not in heaven. It's just the church saying that we don't have enough evidence to be sure that this person is in heaven. So in order to be sure that someone is in heaven, the church goes through an incredibly rigorous process. In the early Christian church, the process of canonization was much more informal and kind of organic. Someone would develop a reputation for holiness, and then after their death, their fame would spread, and then occasionally a bishop or the pope would intervene to declare someone a saint. But there was no formal process for canonization. 
The problem with that was that at times people were being venerated as saints and then it would turn out that the stories of their life were exaggerated or inaccurate or even that they hadn't lived a particularly virtuous life. And the church realized that a more rigorous process was needed. So since the 12th century, the process of canonization has been changing and developing, but essentially with the same aims and structure. And today we're going to go step by step through that process as it looks now. One thing you'll notice as we go through it is that it is incredibly rigorous. I remember in the past wondering why it took so long for people to be canonized. And then doing the research of this episode, I was like, no, that's why. (laughs) It is insanely detailed. And the reason for that is obviously that the church wants to avoid canonizing someone without sufficient cause. So overall, there are four steps to the canonization process. Step one, declaring the person a servant of God. Step two, declaring them venerable. Step three, declaring them blessed. And step four, declaring them a saint. Now, this whole process of canonization can only begin at least five years after someone has died. This allows for time to see that the person is enjoying a genuine, widespread reputation for holiness. It's a way of making sure that it isn't just this person's friends and family members who thought they were amazing. We're actually seeing that this person showed extraordinary signs of sanctity that are being recognized by many people. We're also leaving time and space for objectivity, for the immediate emotions of the people closest to them to settle after their death, and for all of the facts about their life to kind of rise to the surface. However, In special cases where a person's reputation for holiness has already been publicly established for many years during their lifetime, the Pope can waive some or all of those five years and start the process for canonization earlier. So that has happened in the case of Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, and also Lucia Santos, who was one of the three children of the Fatima apparitions. Before a person's cause for canonization can even be opened, can even begin, a few things need to happen. First of all, you need what is called a petitioner to begin the cause. So a petitioner is a person or persons who petition or ask the bishop to open the cause for canonization. The petitioner also needs to appoint someone called a postulator. A postulator is the person who is responsible for investigating the life of that person. They're like a saint detective. So a postulator can be a lay person, a priest or a religious, but whoever they are, They have to be an expert in theology, history, and canon law. They also have to be familiar with the canonization process, and their role as postulator needs to be formally approved by the bishop. So the postulator, the saint detective, is responsible for collecting as much evidence as possible about that person and their life and demonstrating to the bishop that that person has a widespread reputation for sanctity and that their cause is important for the church. Once the postulator has all of their evidence about that person and once five years have passed after the person's death, The postulator, on behalf of the petitioner, presents their evidence to the bishop of the diocese in which that person died. This evidence includes 
a biography with an accurate report on the person's life, their deeds, their virtues, any signs of sanctity during their lifetime, as well as evidence that could provide an obstacle to the cause for canonization. They also need to submit a copy of all the published writings of that person and a list of other people who can provide testimony about the person, including people with a critical or a negative opinion. The Congregation for the Causes of the Saints notes that during this initial process, nothing should be omitted which seems contrary or less favorable to the cause. So basically, we're not just trying to talk this person up. The job of the postulator isn't just to find all of the good stuff about them. It's to find everything about them. We're trying to give an accurate and comprehensive account of their life. After looking at all of the evidence, the bishop then makes a decision about whether or not to open a cause for canonization. And if he decides to, then at that point, we are at step one. (laughs) The person is now officially declared a servant of God. So the whole process just begins here. Once the cause is opened, the bishop leads a thorough investigation into the life of that person. He'll appoint two theological experts to read all of the person's writings and confirm that there's nothing in them that's contrary to the faith. All of the witnesses of that person's life will be interviewed and someone called a promoter of justice is appointed. A promoter of justice is like a lawyer. It's their job to read and analyze all of the evidence about the person and make a decision about whether or not it's valid and accurate. In the past, there used to be a role called the devil's advocate, which you might have heard of. And the job of the devil's advocate was specifically to try to poke holes in the case and to try to prove why this person wasn't a saint. These days, in order to kind of streamline the process, that job of devil's advocate belongs to the promoter of justice. So it's their job to think really critically about this person and not just kind of accept unthinkingly all of the evidence that they're given. However... In some cases where the person was a bit controversial, the bishop can deliberately seek out someone to argue against the person's cause. So, for instance, during the process for Mother Teresa's canonization, the church invited Christopher Hitchens to come and give testimony, which I think is kind of awesome. The promoter of justice also has to make sure, along with the bishop, that no one has started to worship this person, to treat them with a kind of heretical degree of reverence or to perform superstitious practices around them. So the church is being very careful to distinguish between someone being holy and venerable and someone being treated like a bit of a demigod. Okay, we don't want that. So once the bishop's investigation is complete... He'll prepare a report that gets sent to Rome along with all of the other evidence, and it's reviewed by the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints in Rome. The Congregation for the Causes of the Saints looks over all of the evidence and makes a decision about whether or not this person truly lived a life of heroic virtue. Now, we've used that phrase heroic virtue a couple of times so far. So this might be a good point to pause and think about what it actually means. Like, what is the church looking for when they analyze this person's life? The Catholic Encyclopedia describes heroic virtue as a habit of good conduct that has become second nature, 
capable of rendering easy a series of acts which for the ordinary man would be beset with very great, if not insurmountable difficulties. Okay, that was very complicated and lots of big words in there. Let's break it down. Basically, what it's saying is that we have to go through every single one of the virtues. So faith, hope, charity, justice, fortitude, temperance, prudence, and decide whether that person lived every single one of those virtues to a heroic degree. That doesn't mean that they lived that virtue perfectly and with no mistakes or that they never sinned. Obviously, we are all sinners and we've all made mistakes. But in the case of a saint, what we see is someone who has struggled heroically throughout their life to obtain every virtue. They have consistently said yes to the grace and the help of God. And eventually, with God's help, they have gotten to the point where living virtue becomes second nature. It becomes easy. They've become totally purified by the grace of God. So it's really good to bear that in mind. If you're ever reading the biography of a saint and it's like, and then he lost his temper and you're like, ah, I'm so scandalized. I can't believe he sinned. Okay. Being a saint, it does not mean being perfect and you never sin. It means being perfected by God over the course of your life. So the congregation for the cause of the saints reviews all of the evidence. And if they decide that the person has lived a life of heroic virtue, They send their findings to the Pope, and once the Pope has accepted them, then an official decree is published, and the person is declared venerable. Not a saint, venerable. So at this point, we're not even at the point of beatification, let alone canonization. The person is still not officially considered a saint. What that means is that you're not allowed to publicly venerate them or offer public prayers for their intercession or even to publicly display images of them. I mean, you can absolutely offer private prayer and have a personal devotion to them. That's fine. But the church hasn't made any public formal declaration that they are definitely in heaven. So we need to be careful not to treat the declaration that someone is venerable like some sort of confirmation that they're a saint or they're definitely in heaven, because that's not what it means. And this might sound a bit ridiculous. It's like, oh, come on, guys, we've spent like 20 years analyzing this person's life. Surely at this point, there is enough proof that they are a saint. But the reason for this is actually so beautiful. I was When I was researching this bit, I was like tearing up. I was like, oh, gosh, the church is so beautiful. <laughs> the reason why the church doesn't publicly declare this person a saint yet is Because it's an act of humility, right? The church is acknowledging that it doesn't matter how much evidence we have, no human being can judge a person's soul at the time of their death. Like no one can make that decision. The only thing that the church has the power to do is to say, this person was holy. (laughs) This person was virtuous. She doesn't have the power to say, we've decided this person is a saint. No one on earth has the power to decide off their own bat whether or not someone is in heaven, no matter how much evidence we have to suggest that they probably are. Confirmation that someone is truly in heaven has to come from heaven. So for that reason, after a person has been declared venerable, the church basically waits We wait for a miracle that can be attributed to that person's intercession. In other words, we need to have evidence that people have in their own private devotion and prayer. They've asked for the help and intercession of this person. And as a result of those prayers, a verifiable miracle has occurred. Now, usually, not always, but usually these miracles are some form of medical cure. And just like with all of the previous steps, 
analyzing and deciding on whether or not something is a miracle is an extremely rigorous process in the church. So in the case of a medical cure, three things have to be proven in order to say that it was a miracle. First of all, that the cure was instantaneous. That is, that it occurred over a period of minutes, hours, or days. Secondly, that it was lasting. So it has to have lasted for at least a year. And finally, that it is inexplicable. There has to be no scientifically plausible way to account for the miracle. By that, we don't mean that like, oh, we just don't have enough scientific knowledge yet to understand how this happened. But once we understand it better, then we'll be able to explain it. No, when something is inexplicable, we mean that we actually do have the knowledge to understand it. And according to that knowledge, this cure should never have been possible in the natural order of things. So if a medical cure occurs and people believe that it's miraculous, then it first has to be analyzed by medical experts and they have to confirm that all three of those qualities were there. There also has to be evidence that people were praying specifically to that saint before the miracle occurred and not to any other saint. It has to be attributable to that person's intercession. Now, usually you need one miracle before someone can be declared blessed. And then after that, you need a second miracle before they can be canonized. A second miracle is not required in the case of a martyr. And also the Pope can waive this requirement for a second miracle in exceptional cases. So this is what happened in the case of Pope John XXIII. Now, one quick reminder before we move on, just to clarify in case anyone is confused or scandalized. When we say that we're praying to a saint or we say that a miracle has been performed through their intercession, we are not saying that that saint has their own personal powers and that they worked this miracle themselves. The saints are not demigods. Okay, God is the only one who has the power to heal and work miracles. But in these cases, we say that the miracle was worked by God through the prayers of that saint. So we see examples of something similar in the Acts of the Apostles, right? We see the apostles working miracles in Jesus' name, okay, as a result of their prayers to God. So they are drawing on God's power, not their own, to perform a miracle. We can also think of times when we go to our friends and family and we ask them to pray for something. And through those prayers, God grants us a favor. So when we pray to the saints in heaven, we're asking for them to pray for us to God. We're not asking for them to draw on their own personal power. The reason we go to the saints in heaven is that they are in heaven. They are literally in the presence of God, experiencing the beatific vision. Okay, so what better person to go to to ask for prayers and intercession? So just for funsies, let's take a look at a couple of examples of miracles that have paved the way for beatification and canonization. The first example is the miracle that allowed for the beatification of St. Jose Maria Escriva. So there was a nun in the 1970s, and her name was Sister Concepcion, and she was suffering from a number of medical conditions that had basically brought her to death's doorstep. She had multiple excruciatingly painful tumors growing all over her body, including one on her shoulder that was apparently the size of an orange. She also had multiple stomach issues, including a gastric ulcer that was causing regular hemorrhaging. I hope you weren't eating when you heard that bit. <laughs> basically, these conditions had been getting worse and worse over a number of 
years until it became clear that she was dying. Her doctors said that they couldn't do any more for her and that she was in the terminal stage of her illness. Apparently, she was in incredible pain, but she had made peace with the fact that she was dying. She was pretty much ready to go. However, her sisters, this is such a sister move. Her sisters were like, nope, not on my watch. And they'd all been praying nonstop to, at that time, venerable Jose Maria. Apparently, they all prayed to him every single day for a cure for their sister. So the following is taken from a written account of her cure. It says, During an especially difficult night, the religious felt some pain that was so acute that she believed that her last hour had come. The doctor states, she was resigned to it and had interior peace. She saw that she could die and she offered her life to God. About five o'clock in the morning, she finally went to sleep. She rested for about two hours and at seven, feeling better, decided to take a shower. It was then that she realized that the tumor on her shoulder had disappeared. In two hours, guys, in two hours. Even though no wound was visible, Sister Concepcion thought that the tumor could have burst the skin and went to see whether the sheets were stained. She saw no stain. She decided to dress, and in the moment that she was putting on her slippers, saw that the tumor on the left foot had also disappeared, leaving no trace. So basically, she went back to her doctors, and she got a series of x-rays and scans, and every single one of her tumors had disappeared overnight and completely without a trace. There wasn't even any sign that they had been there in the first place, like no scarring, no nothing. There was also no sign of the gastric ulcer, the hemorrhaging stopped and all of her other symptoms disappeared. Her case was examined by a number of medical experts and they all agreed that her cure was absolutely medically inexplicable. The case was sent to Rome and examined and confirmed to be a miracle and St. Jose Maria was soon after beatified. Another example of a miracle is the one that opened the way for Mother Teresa's canonization. So Marsilio Andrino is an engineer, and in the early 2000s, he started getting really bad headaches and having balance issues and having convulsions. It was soon discovered that he had a severe brain infection with multiple abscesses and a buildup of fluid in his brain. The infection got worse and worse despite powerful antibiotics, and eventually he was rushed to hospital in excruciating pain. He ended up passing out from the pain. The doctors told his wife that the only solution was immediate brain surgery, but that they weren't able to do the surgery that evening. His wife realized that he might be about to die. Now, throughout Marsilio's illness, he and his wife had prayed nonstop to Mother Teresa. His wife had been given a relic of hers and she would place it on his head where the abscesses were and they would pray together for her intercession. So on this night, Marsilio is lying on what looks to be his deathbed. His wife is praying her heart out. The doctor comes out to tell her that Marsilio isn't going to be operated on that evening. And then he walks back into the operating room and Marsilio is like sitting up wide awake. And he looks at the doctor and he's like, what's going on? Why am I here? (laughs) So he told the doctor that he felt completely fine. He wasn't in any pain. And after the scans, the doctors saw that the abscesses and fluid were rapidly receding. After a few days, they were completely gone. There wasn't even any scar tissue. Again, like in the other miracle, there was no sign that they had ever even been there in the first place. So this incident was also examined by medical experts. They agreed that it was rapid, lasting and inexplicable. And soon after, Mother Teresa was canonized. 
How cool is that? So before we finish, what's the difference between beatification and canonization? Well, once someone has been beatified, they can receive a limited degree of public veneration. So they can be venerated within the circles that they belong to, such as their own religious community or regional area. Once the person receives that second miracle, that is when they are canonized. They're officially declared a saint by the church. And then everyone everywhere is encouraged to pray for their intercession, to imitate their virtues and to find inspiration in their lives. Both beatification and canonization involve a public ceremony. Beatification usually occurs in the area where that person lived, whereas canonization occurs in St. Peter's Square in Rome, and anyone can attend either. Okay, final thing before we finish up. All of this is so fascinating. I have so enjoyed going deeper into this and finding out more about how canonization works. But there's just one key practical takeaway that kept popping into my head that I wanted to share. And that is the reminder that this is what every single one of us is called to. (laughs) I mean, very few people are actually officially canonized, but every single one of us is called to be a canonizable saint. We are all called to live a life of heroic virtue. When we die, we want to be the kind of person that someone could comb through our lives and say, yep, this person lived every single virtue to a heroic degree. This isn't just a privileged calling of the few. This is what every single one of us is called to. This is the point of life. So... It can be a good thing for us to take to prayer. I know it's something that I'm going to do. Sit down with a list of virtues and in the presence of God, examine how we live each one. And wherever we see evidence of our sinfulness, our vices, our brokenness, we can bring it to God in confession and we can ask for his help to do better. There's a quote from St. Therese of Lisieux that I wanted to end with. She says, I am daringly confident that one day I shall become a great saint. I am not relying on my own merits because I haven't any. I hope in him who is virtue and sanctity itself. He alone, content with my frail efforts, will lift me up to himself, clothe me with his own merits and make me a saint. So this can be true of all of us. If we keep saying yes to God, if we keep striving and being open to his grace, we too can say with St. Therese of Lisieux, I am confident that one day I shall become a great saint. Awesome. Sick one. So next episode, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Such fun. Can't wait. Have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Crash Course Catholicism. If you are enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so by subscribing and leaving a review. You can also become a patron on Patreon. But most importantly, please pray for me and for everyone listening to this podcast. Have a fantastic